Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello, all. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. Here we want to bring you information on how you can progress toward optimal health. We've had speakers speak, you know, in times of COVID, it's pretty important. We want to know how to build our immunity. We've had experts come and speak on vitamin D, vitamin C, hydroxychloroquine. This is important information. Is this information getting out to the public? Uh, Is something getting in the way? Anyway, these are questions that I ponder. So today we have a real pioneer, a brave soul, an expert uh, who is looking into these same questions because he wants everybody to be healthy as well. Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas in the USA. On the onset of the pandemic, he had been a leader in the medical response to the COVID-19 disaster. He's published Pathophysiological Basis and Rationale for Early Outpatient Treatment of SARS-CoV-2, that is COVID-19, infection. The first synthesis of sequence multidrug treatments for ambulatory patients infected with SARS-CoV-2 in the American Journal of Medicine and subsequently updated in reviews of cardiovascular medicine. He has 40 peer-reviewed publications in the area of infections and has commented extensively on the medical response to COVID-19 in the Hill and Fox News channel. On November 19, 2020, he testified at the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs and throughout 2021 in the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services and also in the Colorado General Assembly and the New Hampshire Senate concerning many aspects of the pandemic response. Welcome, Dr. McCullough. You are a true pioneer. You are my hero, and I'm honored to have you on the show. Well, Susan, Susan thanks for uh, um, having me on. I'm, I'm kind of tired right now listening to how much effort the pandemic has really placed on all of us. And as you've remarked, I've been very busy and remain so until we close out this horrific problem that's hit our country. Well, I think you're leading the march. So can you start telling us where you think this virus came from? We're learning a lot more about this. There was Wikipedia-level knowledge uh, about a year ago that the virus originated out of the National Institute of Virology Laboratory of Wuhan, China. And then the story changed with a paper published in Lancet uh, last year suggesting that the virus spontaneously arose from a fish market. And I looked at that paper carefully, and in that paper, about 60% of patients looked like they got it at a fish market, but 30% of patients had never gone to that fish market. And as we put things together, it looked like it it was leaked out of a laboratory in Wuhan, China, by one of the workers. Maybe a test tube was spilt or something happened, and then that person uh, died. But before she did, she uh, transmitted it to others, and then that's how it came out of this lab. Wow. There's been a lot of news lately in the gain-of-function research. Can you tell us about that? 
What we've learned is that coronaviruses, which cause the common cold, have on their surface, the ball, the virus is like a ball. The ball is called the nucleocapsid. And on the surface are uh, spiky structures. that look like spikes. They're called spike proteins. We've, we've learned that what happened with this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that there was intentional gain-of-function research to make the spike protein unbreakable. Normally, the human body can break it at a site called the furin cleavage site. And we have a natural enzyme in ourselves called furin. We cleave it, and we can, we can basically clip that spike off, and the virus is easily digested. It's handled by the body. But gain-of-function research made that spike protein unbreakable. So now that spike protein can also travel into the ACE2 receptors, the Tempest 2 receptors. They can rapidly invade the body. And then when it does, it causes unprecedented destruction. Not only does the virus replicate, but it triggers immune reactions. And uh, of interest, the, the way it's actually fatal is that it causes blood clotting. It causes an unusual type of blood clotting called hemagglutination and then thrombosis that follows. Because the spike protein basically uh, sticks into certain uh, structures on the surface of red blood cells and causes the red blood cells to clump together. And what we learned over time when patients have difficulty breathing and the oxygen saturation is going down, it's actually due to blood uh, microthrombosis or blood clotting in the lungs. It's not due to the virus itself. You know, I've heard over 15 months ago that this virus likely leaked from a lab. I also heard that there's a specific SNP genetic sequence of, uh, I don't know, three, four, five SNPs that looks like they're man-made and could not have come from evolution. So does this appear to be man-made? Well, the entire spike protein isn't man-made, but there are modifications to it that clearly could not have been occurred in nature, including the um, stabilization of the furin cleavage joint. And then there are four loops in one of the two segments of the spike protein, and those loops have the RNA signature or homology to HIV or the uh, human immunodeficiency virus or the AIDS virus. So in, in a sense, this spike protein does take contain some codes for the AIDS virus. And doctors were always wondering this because when patients acutely present, we see a depressed lymphocyte count. Usually in a viral infection, we see an increased lymphocyte count. And because of these uh, HIV uh, sequences uh, in there, we, we have a sense that it was clearly uh, altered by mankind. And in fact, this HIV part of this is disturbing. Uh, one of the original vaccine efforts that occurred in Australia, uh, and all the vaccine efforts basically work to uh, have the body be exposed to the spike protein again. So uh, uh, if you didn't get the natural infection, now the vaccine is going to expose individuals to gain-of-function research products. But the vaccine uh, immunization program, which was halted, it turned all the subjects blood test positive for AIDS, for HIV, even if they didn't have AIDS. So that product must have exposed these segments of the spike protein that look identical to HIV. Wow. We're going to get into that later. That's mind-boggling. But I do remember hearing about this a year ago. I just wonder why it's taken other people so long. But anyway, everybody's concerned about this virus. I mean, oh, my God, you can't touch that. Oh, you can't look at that person. Oh, we've got to be six feet away from them. How does this virus really spread? 
the virus spread uh, largely through the air in close contact. Uh, we know from t- uh, studies in the United States and in China, originally in China, that 85% of the spread occurs at home, in the home. So someone brings it into the home, and once the virus is inside the house, it tends to concentrate in the air, particularly when there's closed windows. And that's where we saw these catastrophic, explosive outbreaks, originally in Wuhan, and then in Milan, and in New York City, kind of all the places where there were linear sky, uh, skyscrapers, and people were concentrated, and once the virus got out of control, it really uh, ran rampant. So that's really how it spread, and I, I saw some film clips of of scenes early on because one of the outbreaks was in the Princess cruise boat. And uh, once all the passengers got off, uh, about two weeks later, scientists went in and did some screening, and they, they actually found viral particles on plates and on surfaces. And even though the virus was dead, it turns out it was dead, there was a scare. And the scare was that it could be spread by touching a plate or touching a pizza box. And so um, one of the clips that was shown was Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN uh, teaching America how they should sterilize their groceries and how they should wipe down this and that. And, and, and you, we just recall how we were gripped with fear and misinformation driving um, uh, practices that, that had no basis in evidence. Okay, so, I, I mean, the fear of any contagion uh, is almost paralyzing to most people. So you're saying that in the home, you know, through person-to-person contact uh, is the primary way it's spread? Does that extend to offices and workplaces? It would if close contact is there. I think all of us have been in an office in a close environment, let's say some cubicles, and one person gets a cold and it spreads to everyone else. Okay, that's happened. We've all been in a household where one person gets a cold and it spreads to everyone else. It largely spreads the same way. But this fear, this, in a sense, contagion of group um, fearfulness, uh, got to the point where people were wearing masks outside as if the virus could, could shoot through the air and, and strike somebody down uh, when they were riding their bike. Um, it got to the point where it, uh, the, the authorities were making little kids wear masks when they uh, went out to play soccer. Even as we sit here today, there are countries that will not let people out of their houses without affidavit to actually get a government affidavit to go out and, and buy some groceries or go out and, and have a doctor's appointment. So fear has overcome common sense when it comes to simple respiratory viral spread. Wow, this fear is paralyzing and it's got the whole world under its thumb. So how do we really test for this virus? The testing evolved over time. i never forget at my hospital the very first types of testing was called polymerase chain reaction. And um, that involves uh, basically a technique where we try to pick up some viral RNA and get it into a system and then run it through a cycle, a repetition cycle, to see if we can actually amplify it to get to the point where we can identify some viral RNA is there. And our initial tests that we had, we had to get our samples and then have people in cars, and this was back in February, March, and they used to drive two hours to another center, and they would run a laboratory PCR test, and then we'd wait uh, probably a week or two later to get the answers back. That's where we were there. And that could identify 
when we got to viral particles per unit of, um, of kind of fluid that we would get off a swab, that what you'd have to know is like 2,000 copies would, would have been a positive test and, you know, below that would have been negative. And that same um, uh, system today with modern-day PCR can identify down to 15 copies. So you can imagine a positive test now almost certainly would have been a negative test back in March. And so how things evolved over time is the nasal PCR tests evolved. All the tests are strictly indicated to be used in sick people. There are no indications by any authorities to ever use these tests in people without any symptoms. And I can tell you, I'm going on a trip next week on American Airlines, and I have to go somewhere to get a test in order to get on the plane. Well, that use of the test that American Airlines is asking for, and it turns out actually that the destination where I'm going is really asking for it, that has no basis in, uh, in scientific evidence, and it has no basis in regulatory approval. So individuals, states, authorities are using um, testing outside of its regulatory indication. So one of the things we've seen here is a derailing of the regulations. If uh, the FDA diagnostic uh, panel says that a test is indicated for a purpose, states and travel agencies and other businesses should strictly use the test along the lines they're approved. They should not go outside the lines of approval, but in fact, that's happening. Now, testing has advanced. Uh, so the PCR testing can test for some of the RNA sequences for the nucleocapsid, the ball of the virus, as well as for polymerases. But the PCR test does not identify any code for the spike protein. That's important. The antigen tests can identify the ball of the virus, which is the same as the SARS-1 virus. So the antigen test, in a sense, is testing for SARS-1 and SARS-2. We assume SARS-1 is over with, and so when the antigen test turns positive, that's uh, SARS-2. Now, that's a different uh, technology. It's not PCR, but it's called a sandwich uh, enzyme-linked radioimmunoassay. So it's based on antibodies that can uh, identify, in a test tube, identify the nucleocapsid. That's the form of testing uh, that we can use rapidly. You get the answer back in 10 minutes. The nice thing about that test is it proves that the virus is there, which almost certainly the virus is alive. The downside with that testing is it's not so sensitive, but we would trade off sensitivity for something that has a higher positive predictive value. And then the final type of testing that has just come in diagnostically is called sequencing, called Stanger sequencing. So we can actually take sequences and identify the actual sequences that are there in the virus. Instead of trying to amplify something in a test tube, actually just measure what's there. So the sequencing, the Chinese moved to that very readily. And believe it or not, the best place to sequence is out of the GI tract. So it turns out the whole virus comes out in the GI tract, and they've been using anal swabs uh, very uh, accurately there. Now, antibody testing uh, we can do later on, and we'll talk about that when we get to immunity. Okay, so uh, the PCR test, is, are there a lot of false positive, false negatives? Yeah, well, that's the problem. As uh, we've learned, 
the critical number to think about on the PCR test is called the psycho threshold. So at low cycle threshold, the test loses sensitivity, but it has a much higher positive predictive value. That means when it's positive, the virus is really there and causing infection. At high cycle thresholds, it means we're picking up either dead virus or RNA fragments from other pathogens in the uh, nasal secretion. So the high cycle thresholds, by uh, misuse, if we use them in asymptomatic people who have a low chance of having the virus, all we can do is generate false positives. So we know this, for instance, in all the testing of athletes and coaches in the NFL, NBA, and college, uh, the vast majority of those positive tests are false positive tests. Even the newscasters know that now. They, they, know, it's, they know it's basically just a waste of time. And it's estimated total since uh, under the emergency um, declaration, the executive order by President Trump, all the laboratories have to report all positive tests into a central data center. Uh, in that central data center, the, the data are reported to Johns Hopkins, which was fully prepared to do all this actually from its planning several years ago. So um, that positive testing, uh, it's estimated that 40% of the case count in the United States is actually just false positive testing. The other really flawed thing about testing is that there's no accounting for duplicates. So if someone had a test at CVS and then they went to Walgreens and they went over here to a nursing home, they got three different tests, um, that would count as, let's say we were positive on all three, that would count for for three different patients. There's no way to account for a single patient in that testing. Uh, So that's a flaw. And then most recently, the biggest flaw in testing is no one's accounting for whether or not a patient had previously had COVID or if they've had the vaccine. So the CDC found out about this. Well, they got these positive tests, came in, and they asked, well, did they have the vaccine or not? So they had to use a complicated phone system to backtrack to see if they had the vaccine. And they had, lo and behold, the CDC had found 10,000 people who are fully vaccinated who, in fact, had COVID. And that was such a large number, they ended up giving up on this. So we're never going to know how much of people getting COVID have actually had the vaccine or, or not. Wow. So one thing I'm hearing is that the previous testing grossly overestimates the number of COVID tests. I also hear from other sources, such as Dr. Scott Jensen, that they're also over-exaggerating the deaths. I mean, for example, locally, somebody killed himself, they count it as a COVID death. If somebody dies in a motor vehicle accident, they count it as a COVID death. Boy, this certainly increases the scare factor for us citizens. That's true, and Dr. Jensen's done a wonderful analysis. He was looking at children uh, where it's obvious uh, COVID accounts for very few, if any, deaths. And the CDC acknowledges this on their webpages. They've basically said, listen, of all the deaths that are reported due to COVID, less than 10% it's COVID alone. There's always other medical problems there. So, so that should tell a healthy person who has no medical problems, the chances of dying of COVID are extraordinarily low. I mean, it just, it, it, it's, it's happened in the CDC database, but it's very, very rare. What happened in medicine, I can tell you, because I was at a medical center and uh, patients were coming in, we used a term called persons under investigation, uh, PUIs, PUIs. And any patient coming into the hospital was declared a, a PUI. We had to rule out COVID. So back then we were using COVID tests and they'd be in the hospital a couple days, 
and we'd wait for the COVID test to come back positive or negative. So, of course, people came in for fatal heart attacks, and they happened to have COVID, or they came in with a fatal pneumonia, or they came in with end-stage cancer, and they happened to have COVID. How the coding went is because uh, there were more favorable reimbursement structures to hospitals to um, help account for COVID mortalities and what a burden it was placing on the system. There, in a sense, was a perverse incentive offered to the hospitals. And in fact, there were some funeral offsets offered to families that were, um, per, um, in a sense, perverse incentives to overcode mortality. And again, those mortalities were rapidly uh, taken up and reported again to the Johns Hopkins website, where Johns Hopkins had actually had a planning exercise in 2017 called the SARS pandemic, where they fully planned for this. They said, we're going to be hit with a coronavirus pandemic, and there's going to be all these different factors to it. So Johns Hopkins plays a role in this whole um, uh, story that's evolving over time that they were kind of ready. I was always wondering, how did that scoreboard get up on the news? I was watching CNN. How does it get up there so fast? I mean, it takes months to get data use agreements. It takes months to get um, death certificates. You have to get releases of information. How is this flowing so fast, so quickly? And Americans just literally almost every day saw a scoreboard of accelerating deaths and hospitalizations. What we learn now is they were grossly overcoded. That worked to promote much more fear that, that should have been promoted. And it created, in a sense, kind of a contagion of fear that spread across the country. Wow. I'm so glad our government is prepared and taking care of us. That makes me feel really good. But I also was told by uh, several people that People get $13,000 if a COVID patient comes to the hospital, 39000 if you put them on a ventilator. Some of Scott Jensen's videos said after you've got 160 patients, a hospital gets $72,000 for each COVID patient. I don't know if that's true or not. Dr. David Brownstein tells me that uh, families of people who died from a heart attack or a stroke, uh, that it goes down as a COVID test. And no matter what the family tries to do to change the diagnosis, it's not changed. But I'm glad they're taking care of us. Um, can you tell me about the four pillars of pandemic response? I was asked to testify in the U.S. Senate on November 19th uh, to really break the news to Americans that we had learned uh, that we could treat COVID-19 at home and prevent hospitalization and death and do it very successfully. And in my presentation, I introduced to America and later published the four pillars of pandemic response. And that is with this virus, because the virus gives us time, the typical person sits at home for two weeks. It starts out very mild, and then it just amps over the course of two weeks. This virus gives us what we call the four pillars, and they are uh, our ability to try to reduce the spread. That's quarantining, wearing masks, and things when people get sick. Uh, the second pillar is early treatment. We have an opportunity for about two weeks to treat it at home. The third pillar is hospital treatment. Heaven forbid patients fail early home treatment. They would come to the hospital. We'll do the best we can there. And then the fourth pillar is vaccination. And what happened in our U.S. pandemic response is that early on, we heard a lot about reducing the spread. Uh, we're learning about government emails from staffers where the vast majority of the emails had to do with uh, wearing masks and how to control the spread. Early on, we heard a little bit about the hospital, but most of it was about personal protective equipment or ventilators. We remember stories where, you know, there were grandmothers trying to knit masks for people and 
government Governor Cuomo calling for General Motors to make ventilators. When, you, when we go back in history and look at these news clips, we're going to just kind of chuckle and say, "Gosh, you know how 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 really how fanciful all of this was. This was just enormously driven out of uh, fear." But in fact, there were little hospital advancements. And today, the current hospital mortality rate for someone who needs the ICU a month later is 38%. So the hospital actually doesn't do much for patients, and the majority of patients do die in the hospital. You know, supportive care is offered, and we hope that patients can do better, but uh, the mortality rate is unacceptably high. And then vaccination, and boy, for the last uh, now six to nine months, it's been a railroad on mass vaccination. But those are the four pillars of pandemic response. And uh, everybody agrees if we would be balanced on those four pillars, that would be the best way to handle the pandemic. When we got imbalanced and we left out the second pillar of early treatment, that's where we really promoted unnecessarily hospitalizations and death. This is the area that interests me the most because we've had many people come on the show talking how to help with COVID. I mean, Doris Lowe mentioned like for the heart effects that she found vitamin C and melatonin and she had a lot of research on it was helpful. A lot of people talking vitamin D, vitamin C, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Uh, Tell us about this. Do these treatments really work? Well, the first thing I'd say is that COVID-19 in some is a, vir- is a fatal viral infection. There is no single fatal viral infection where a single drug works. That's off the table. So we know single drugs don't work alone. Anybody would know that. Any doctor, any reasonable doctor would know that. So immediately, we know that we're in a multi-drug treatment paradigm. The second point is that this virus, there's three major phases, viral replication, immune dysregulation or cytokine storm, and then thrombosis, those three things. And there's no single drug that spans all those mechanisms of action. So, of course, no single drug works, but drugs in combination do. And interestingly, the naturopathic, holistic arm of medical care has kind of joined allopathic medical care in the realization that vitamin deficiencies or micronutrient deficiencies seem to set up patients for mortality. And it is true that uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, uh, quercetin, lysine, and acetylcysteine, there can be others. But in fact, patients who are more replete with these micronutrients have lower mortality. And so what's called a nutraceutical bundle plays a role. Now, if we take the drugs and we organize them in terms of antivirals, we do have emergency use authorized antivirals. The one is featured by Regeneron right now. It can be given uh, in the emergency room or clinic or nursing home for an hour and the patient goes home. That's a wonderful way to start. Americans will remember that President Trump received that and Rudy Giuliani received that. So it's interesting how the monoclonal antibodies, which are grossly underused, it's thought that 80% of these are sitting on the shelf, not being used as Americans die. It's interesting that our president received one of these miraculous therapies, but for some reason, Americans don't demand it. They don't call for it. And that uh, well, when someone gets a test result, they're not given any access to these monoclonal antibodies. So that'd be my first commentary. The oral drugs do work in combination to slow down viral replication. Most widely used drug in the world is hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. That's an anti 
um, uh, uh, malarial and antiparasitic drugs, respectively. We can combine it with doxycycline or zithromycin. There's a third drug called favipiravir, approved in five countries. It works more slowly. It's probably not as effective as hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, but it also can be used. So that's that early antiviral phase. Now, those drugs are helpful, but they're not essential. And so there are doctors that have learned to treat this illness without using um, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine successfully, Dr. Chetty down in South Africa, because hydroxy and ivermectin become, became so politicized, he said, forget it. I'm going to treat the inflammation and the thrombosis with a program. And there you can use inhaled steroids, uh, budesonide. And, and that's an interesting story. Uh, West Texas Maverick, Richard Bartlett, uh, started, uh, you know, early on doctors uh, were given nothing. Uh, this virus was thrown on us. Our patients were getting sick. We were giving no tools at all. It was up to doctors' innovation. Richard Bartlett tried inhaled bedestinide. It looked like it worked. He got on national TV and said, listen, I'm giving this a try. Without any support from anybody, I'm giving it a try. It looks like it works. And it turns out that the STOIC trial in the U.K., prospective randomized trial, showed in fact inhaled bedestinide. It's one of the strongest steroid inhalers. Works. So that's on the board. We know from the in hospital studies and now a meta analysis that oral steroids work. Now, typically, don't start on day one, we sequence it in time, but that's dexamethasone, hydrocortisone, and prednisone. The listeners would realize prednisone is probably the best and most commonly uh, available. So they have a role. There's an anti inflammatory drug called colchicine in a very large clinical trial called Col Corona, which was depressed from publication for months by the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and Lancet, just got published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine, second-tier journal. This is the largest prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that we have in all of COVID. The best trial has been suppressed for five months, and in fact, colchicine, a gout drug given for 30 days, reduces hospitalization and death significantly. In that bundle, not studied, but people are using it, is Montelukast or Singular which is uh, an anti-allergic drug. When we get to blood thinners, we know that aspirin works from inpatient studies, but it's regular adult aspirin, 325 milligrams. And then for higher-risk patients, harder lung disease, patients with low oxygen saturations, cancer, we go ahead and just use full blood thinners, injectable low, low mucoid heparin like Lovenox or oral anticoagulants like apixaban. So what I've described for you is what's called sequence multidrug therapy, um, I was the first to put this together with a, a team from U.S. and Italian doctors. We published that in the American Journal of Medicine, the most frequently cited and downloaded paper from that journal from that point forward. And then the follow-up was published in December of 2020, Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, a dedicated COVID-19 issue. And that gave the update with ivermectin and monoclonal antibodies and colchicine. So this is very well supported. There are hundreds and hundreds of papers to support it. We don't have a single large randomized trial testing all four to six drugs together, and none are planned at this point in time. I, I've told the critics, I said, listen, don't, don't cry for more evidence. It's not coming. we got to go with this right now. Uh, we were on target to lose 2 million Americans. I think we cut it off at 600,000 with early treatment. It really kicked in at the end of December, January, and we crushed our curves. Yeah, uh, this is, I've talked to, uh, for example, Dr. Rowan and uh, David Brownstein, between them, treated over 400 patients, and I think only one of Dr. Brownstein's went to the hospital. This excludes a patient who got in late stage. And yet, they're getting notices from the FTC that they've got to take all this down. Um, and also, I understand that after Trump was saying, hey, let's consider hydroxychloroquine, 
hydroxyquinine, that uh, Gilead Pharmaceuticals, uh, their stock values went down. So then some papers came out in the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet saying, oh, no, you can't use hydroxyquinine. It's got bad heart effects. But you know, it's got a long half-life. You only need three pills. We've been using it for 50 years for lupus and malaria. Uh, and then these papers are proven false and taken down. What is going on that we've got medical journals censoring information? We've got YouTube, whose policy says they're going to censor anything that doesn't go along with WHO. We've got, I saw April 15 FTC document that anybody that even prescribes hydroxyquinine is subject to prosecution. Is somebody trying to suppress something? It's almost as if a memo went out to everybody, and it went to their heads and said, listen, if there's any hope of treatment, if there's any possibility that we could prevent a hospitalization and death, let's try to subvert it. Let's try to suppress it at all levels. At all levels. It's almost as if it's in the mind. I'll give you an example. How about when we give a COVID-19 test result? Do we give patients any home treatment instructions? Do patients get any prescription? Do they get any follow-up? Do they get a 1-800 number to get into research trials? Do they get a 1-800 number to access the monoclonal antibodies, which are EUA approved? The answer is no. We couldn't do a worse job in diagnosing millions and millions of Americans with COVID-19. They go to urgent care centers and ERs. We give them nothing. We give them a test result and say, listen, go home. And if you really get worse and you can't breathe, have somebody bring you to the hospital. And what everyone should know is that, you know, you take a senior citizen, they go home, they're scared to death, they know they can die of it, they turn on the TV, and they get progressively short of breath and febrile over two weeks. At the point of panic, it says, listen, I can't take it anymore. Uh, They call family members, they call Uber drivers, taxi drivers, EMS, and they super spread the virus to everybody. So every hospitalization has been a super spreader effect. And what we found is that if we can treat patients at home with the sequence multidrug oral therapy, we can call in drugs and the pharmacy can, can drop it off at the front porch. We can reduce hospitalizations and death by 85%. It's no surprise. Part of the effect is just settling down people so they don't get so anxious. There's even been a clinical trial of an anti-anxiety drug called fluvoxamine. That works to take an edge off the uh, shortness of breath. We can get home oxygen concentrators at home. It just pulls the oxygen out of the air, not oxygen tanks. We do that all the time. In fact, under emergency use authorization, we simply make a phone call. I've done that dozens and dozens of times. So I testified on November 19th as an internist and cardiologist. I've never denied early treatment to a single patient of mine. I would have lost my patients. And in fact, doctors who did deny treatment to their patients, and we have good reason to believe that every single one of those 600,000 Americans who died made desperate calls to their doctors and their hospitals, and they were told, no, there's no treatment. Sorry. The National Institutes of Health published a guideline for COVID-19. The very first one came out October of 2020. It said, if someone develops COVID-19 at home, don't treat them. There's no evidence. There's no clinical trials. Don't treat them. There's nothing. And they come into the hospital. Still don't treat them. Still don't treat them. And then it says when their oxygen uh, saturations go down, they need oxygen, then start remdesivir. And this document will go down as probably the worst, nihilistic, poorly 
conceived document in medical history. Remdesivir is an antiviral drug. It inhibits the RNA-dependent polymerase. Well, but I told you, by the time the oxygen saturation goes down, that's not the virus doing that. That's blood clotting. I mean, you can think about how inept the guidelines writers were. And, and listen, these guidelines weren't the first ones. The uh, Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, has had three or four or five versions of guidelines. Not a single one uh, says that patients should be treated at home. In fact, it says don't treat patients. Don't use products. So you couldn't have crafted a worse response. In fact, a millionaire, Steve Kirsch, has put out a challenge publicly and said if anybody can show him that the CDC, the NIH, the WHO, um, or the CDC has done anything to help patients with COVID-19 at home prevent hospitalization and death, that they've done anything, he says, show me, I'll pay you $2 million. No one's come forward. Wow. Yeah, this is even more perverse than what you're saying. For example, the CEO of YouTube gets on and says, we're going to censor anything on vitamin C or curcumin, anything that goes against WHO. Somebody also told me that he was told by somebody in the FDA that if you promote vitamin D at all, or if you don't promote it, then we'll give you nice pharmacy jobs when you leave the FDA. I mean, it's something... It's not that just one memo went on. This is going on all over the world. There's something very um, dark going on in the world, and it is pervasive. And in individuals whose eyes are clear and they have the courage, they are absolutely rooting out wrongdoing. I mean, there are demand letters into the WHO saying, transparency on early medical therapy and vaccine safety. There are demand letters into the CDC to recognize natural immunity and not put this ridiculous prioritization on vaccine immunity, which is clearly faulty. People get COVID-19 after the vaccine. They don't get COVID-19 once you've recovered from the original infection. So something is really going wrong here. Uh, and We could go on for hours with these examples, but there's one clear trend. Every single one of these working examples has the result of promoting fear, hospitalization, suffering, and death. Every single one of them. There's not a single one that's positive. You can't pick a single CDC um, statement where you say, okay, that's pretty good. That makes sense. That's making things better. Not a single one. 100% of them make it worse. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just uh, from a medical point of view, fear raises cortisol. But uh, also, doesn't fear make it a lot easier to control us? Well, as a net result, fear uh, creates tremendous uh, dependency. And what we've seen is a deferral to authority that we've never seen before. So one of the examples I've used is the Centers for Disease Control, NIH, CDC, and FDA. They are government offices that have missions to serve us. They serve patients and they serve doctors and healthcare providers. They are servants to us and they analyze data. They can provide recommendations. So for instance, the CDC says you should eat less than 10% of your calories in sugar and saturated fat per day. Okay, that's a helpful recommendation. And one of the reviewers, uh, interviewers asked me one time, doctor, what do you think about the most recent CDC ruling on math? And I said, ruling? You know, are they... Are they the Supreme Court? 
And of course not, but that was an example of deferral to authority. So in the setting of fear, people start to um, amplify authority into centralized groups that actually don't have the authority. The CDC does not have an authority to tell anybody to take a vaccine or wear a mask. They do not have authority to do that. But yet, in the setting of panic and emergency, that authority is assumed. Also, the lockdowns has destroyed many people. That's going to make people dependent on the government and, hence, more controllable. But let's go on to another topic. What's therapeutic nihilism? Therapeutic nihilism is a mindset that can become a contagion where doctors get a groupthink of not treating a patient for a particular problem. So we've seen this before, for instance, in patients with drug abuse, where there's a groupthink saying, you know what, we're, we're not going to go to great efforts to treat them if, if they're going to harm themselves with drug abuse. There's been thoughts about this for smokers and advanced lung disease. Um, this has happened in end-stage renal disease on dialysis. There's papers written about this where there's therapeutic nihilism. What happened in COVID-19 is COVID-19 patients almost were shunned. They were shunned by the medical community. Uh, do you know that all the major academic medical centers, they never opened up COVID treatment clinics. They never had tents out in front to take care of sick patients. So when patients developed COVID-19, they called their doctors. Their doctors said, hey, I don't treat COVID-19. And they went on a scramble. The vast majority of patients with COVID-19 were diagnosed at urgent care centers. And the urgent care said, listen, we'll make the diagnosis, and, uh, but that's it. You know, we're not treating you for this. So by default, therapeutic nihilism got in the mindset of doctors. And to this day, the vast majority of doctors have actually never treated COVID-19. I can tell you one of the problems is that among the White House Task Force 1 and 2, all the CDC, FDA, and NIH officials, um, all the media doctors outside of a few, none of them have actually seen or treated a COVID patient. So they don't know. They don't know, and um, many have said, listen, if, if we just had doctors who had the courage to treat COVID patients who are already figuring out how to treat them, if we put them in charge and we didn't have uh, the task force, the NIH, CDC officials, if we just had real doctors in charge, almost like this was a, a, a war and was a mass unit and we needed real doctors, that we probably could have saved half a million American lives. We would have kept the economy open. We would have had all this practical decision-making. We would have just treated the problem. And so the whole shape of, of U.S. history would have changed if we just had doctors, real doctors, who had the courage to treat patients in charge instead of bureaucrats and pundits and other uh, commentators. In the U.S. Senate hearing, it became very clear in the first set of hearings uh, myself and Dr. George Freed had treated thousands of patients. The second set of hearings, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey and J.J. Rochester and others had treated thousands of patients. And, and the um, minority witness, uh, the, um, uh, um, in a sense, the counter, the counter um, testimony, uh, each time was by a non-treating doctor. And so in ours, there was this dramatic moment where uh, we knew this ahead of time. Senator Johnson waited after about two hours, and he, and, and he asked the minority witness, who had basically advised America for two hours uh, on COVID-19, you know, concluding that Americans should not be treated for COVID-19. He said, doctor, have you ever treated a patient? Have you ever seen a patient with COVID? 
And then he very meekly said, no, Senator, I haven't. And that was the, that was the real shoe drop moment where, where people said, this guy's a fraud. You know, what's interesting about this is if there's early treatment, you can't call an emergency pandemic response, and there wouldn't be the motivation to try to uh, find an alternative treatment because, oh, there's, we don't recognize any existing treatments. So that ultimate treatment, the vaccines, are they safe? Well, Americans have been waiting for this uh, vaccine program to get rolling. We, we were told in about May or so, it was almost immediately after we figured out the problem, suddenly the the um, uh, the solution was going to be a vaccine. And later on, we, we found out that there, there were already plans by Pfizer and some of these companies in 2016 to form a vaccine featuring this gain-of-function spike protein. So this was already in the works. So it made sense that, wow, how do we get a vaccine so quickly? And that was Operation Warp Speed. So Operation Warp Speed had uh, funding sources through uh, an agency called DARDA, and uh, there's another one called BARDA. And the, the point is, this was largely all planned out ahead of time. That's the reason why it went so quickly. The vaccines, we now know, all use brand new technology, whether it's uh, microRNA technology or adenoviral DNA technology that, in fact, make a piece of novel RNA. Um, but they uniquely trick the body into making the Wuhan spike protein, this gain-of-function protein that um, is, in a sense, been manipulated by, by human beings. And so instead of getting a natural infection and giving you a chance to fight it off, now what we have is we have a scenario where the vaccine uh, tricks the, the uh, body into producing the dangerous spike protein in an uncontrolled manner. And we were originally told by the manufacturers and the Salk Institute that the vaccine stays right in the arm and it doesn't move around and the spike protein is, is produced in the, in the arm and you just form an immune reaction to it to get immune. Um, but individuals didn't believe that, and the Japanese didn't believe it, and they asked Pfizer uh, to do a study, a regulatory study, in animals with this novel lipid particle that carries messenger RNA, and they told Pfizer, show us where it goes in animals. And Pfizer did that, and they did show that, in fact, it doesn't stay right in the muscle. It distributes around, and it distributes to the organs we'd expect to, your spleen and liver and lymph nodes. Um, but we were surprised that it does distribute to the genital organs, in particular the ovaries. And uniquely, the ovaries were the only organs where it concentrated and it increased in concentration over 48 hours, where it tend to wash out out of the other organs. So we had that disturbing piece of information just came in in the last two weeks. And another disturbing piece of information came from a lab from Harvard in Ogata, published in preprint, that the spike protein is measurable in blood for about two weeks. So um, there was immediate concern. A safety report came in recently about a patient getting sick after a blood transfusion. And so someone asked the question, uh, could they have gotten a unit of blood from someone who donated it and had circulating spike protein? So American Red Cross and the American Association of Blood Banking were contacted, and we found out that there are no restrictions on blood donation. So someone can get a Pfizer vaccine and have circulating spike protein and, you know, the next week go to a church blood drive, they could feel perfectly well and they would donate blood. And sure enough, that's going to 
you know, get into the system and make the next person sick. So as we speak right now, we have a national disaster on our hands with the vaccine from a from just a blood contamination perspective and the fact that we just we're learning about things too late. So, uh, you know, the vaccines, when they came out of the gate, they were studied in very low risk populations. The majority had no medical problems, didn't study pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, no kids. And they look pretty good after um, uh, the, the first two months of observation. They made people sick after the, the injection, that's for sure. I mean, 80% felt sick, but the antibodies to the spike protein were high, and there was a reduction in new COVID uh, illnesses. Now, in placebo and in the treatment group, the rates were way less than 1%. So I want the listeners to understand this. The relative risk reductions were high, but the absolute risk reductions were low. The absolute risk reduction is what we apply to a population. If the vaccine had less than a 1% effect on the absolute risk reduction, it's going to have a less than 1% effect in the population. That's mathematically a reality. I think people are thinking we're going to give the vaccine and then we're going to crush these curves. No, the vaccine, it's impossible for the vaccine to crush the epidemic curves. Whatever we see with the, with the rates going up and down has nothing to do with the vaccine. It's impossible for that to happen. It's because the vaccine doesn't stop all the illnesses. And if you uh, have more people vaccinated, it just means that more of the cases are going to come from the vaccinated population. And so in the UK, it's estimated that they're going to quickly hit 60 to 70 percent of their COVID cases coming from vaccinated people. It's just a mathematical reality. But having said that, the vaccines came out of the gate. They were offered in December and uh, people went out and got vaccinated uh, they brought the vaccines to healthcare workers first. And we never had any major healthcare worker outbreaks except for nursing home workers. So I was more of an advocate of just vaccinating the nursing home workers, the high-risk seniors, and limiting the vaccine program. Uh, and I said this publicly because I didn't want to see safety problems build up if we indiscriminately vaccinated people. Uh, but what our officials decided is just the opposite, and they broke with all regulatory tradition. And they basically said, even though patients were excluded from the clinical trials, that they were going to indiscriminately vaccinate them anyway. So, for instance, pregnant women excluded from trials. We never vaccinate pregnant women with biologically active substances that are dangerous. And we knew the spike protein was dangerous. And, in fact, women were, were asked to come forward and seek vaccination. It's been really a horrific time in human history to be vaccinating pregnant women with a biologically dangerous substance that's never been tested in clinical trials. I think when we, when we shake obstetricians out of their trance and we say, doctor, was this reasonable? Have we ever done this before? Uh, I think when they come out of their, their, their trance, I mean, doctors and many people appear to be brainwashed right now, they're going to realize, oh my gosh, this is a horror. This is a horror. We would never do this to a pregnant woman. And the same thing with COVID recovered. They can't get it. They can't receive it. They have 100% immunity. They're just, it's, it's as good as you can get. Instead of recognizing this, they're just being vaccinated. Now three papers show all we do is cause harm. There's no evidence of any benefit in COVID recovered patients. Now the pediatric data, uh, age 12 to 15, the Pfizer data just came out. We vaccinated 2,300 kids. Uh, the vaccine uh, prevented 18 cases of the sniffles. There was no significant clinical benefit whatsoever. And 60 to 80% of the kids got sick after the vaccine. Fevers as high as 40 degrees, uh, nausea, vomiting, muscle aches, uh, feeling sick. Uh, to, you know, parents had to hold them out of school. Mothers scrambling for Tylenol. 
So the vaccine program uh, uh, looks like, in my view, retrospectively, given all the uncertainties, should have been targeted, uh, I think, for the high-risk seniors, nursing home workers, and maybe some older people in high-contact jobs like bus drivers or barbers or things like this, but definitely should not have been widely applied. No rationale um, outside the healthcare workers for anybody under 50. Definitely no support in pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, no support in COVID recovery, and definitely no support in kids. So there should be a broad group of people who should never have been touched by the vaccine. Well, where we are today, we've had over half of Americans been vaccinated, and probably a large fraction of those inappropriately vaccinated. We know that from uh, uh, the studies of COVID recovery patients, that it turns out that a third of patients getting the vaccine have already had the virus, so they can't get it anyway. So the, so the vaccine's going to look pretty good because there's so much preloaded natural immunity. So in many respects right now, as you sit here today, there are calls from international groups to shut down the vaccine program. Uh, they have gone into the WHO. They've gone into every country. They've gone into the CDC, FDA, and NIH. Um, because the mass vaccination program has no clinical event committee, no data safety monitoring board, uh, no ethics committee, um, there are no safeguards for safety of the mass vaccination program. Well, I'm sorry to and interrupt, we're, we're, but what, what I hear is a spike protein it causes a lot of problems. One has to question what happens when it comes, gets to the ovaries. But our government says that the, this is not transmitted through blood transfusions. So in our one and a half minutes left, what do we do now? I think the only reasonable thing is to go ahead and shut down the vaccination program or leave it open just for very high-risk uh, seniors and start the long, hard process of risk mitigation. We have to figure out who's died with the vaccine. Over 4,400 people in America right now, and apparently we're way behind in logging those deaths, and we have 14,000 hospitalizations. Just to find the hospitalizations and deaths, we have to figure out who's dying, why, how we can make the vaccine program safer. Um, if, if Americans are going to be approached with a booster program in the fall, uh, we have to really do a deep dive on what ro- went, went wrong with this mass vaccination program. Well, okay, we're coming to an end now, and this is all such important information, which our government tells us is absolutely wrong, and they censor anything that questions the holy sanctimony of their approach. So I just want the listeners to do their own research uh, and, you know, talk with your colleagues, communicate with your doctors, and and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We